This is Radio Reorient, part of Network Reorient, the podcast arm of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. We aim to explore the post-Western and reconnect the Islamosphere. Welcome listeners old and new to Season 10 of Network Reorient. We are now on our fifth episode of Season 10. Uh, Here in the UK, we're still in Islamophobia Awareness Month, so again, UK listeners, please look out for events happening in your localities and please try to attend. Um, What has happened since I last spoke to you? Well, we've had two votes take place, two important votes. The first was held in the UK Parliament, which was a vote on calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, This motion was defeated with the UK Labour Party abstaining and its leader stating those on the opposition front bench who voted for the ceasefire would be sacked. A second vote occurred in the UN Security Council, in which a vote was passed for humanitarian pauses, but even this was rejected by Israeli government officials. So today's episode is a bit of an unusual one. It's based on a recording of an event we held on Islamophobia and emancipation. This event was held to discuss the definition of Islamophobia that was put forth by the people's definition in the UK. Islamophobia is a form of racism against Muslimness and perceived Muslimness. So in this intriguing episode of Radio Reorient, Gautam Rajib, Abdul Karim Vakil, Salman Saeed, hosted by myself, his Amir, engage in a discussion that explores Islamophobia, its definition and emancipation. Let's listen in. Good afternoon everyone, Sanako. So I think let's make some moves towards beginning. Uh, Welcome to this symposium on Islamophobia and Emancipation. Um, We are honoured to have with us uh, three wonderful speakers who will be talking um, on this issue. So our running order will be uh, Abdul Karim, and then Gautar, and then Salman. So I'd like to introduce first Abdul Karim. Abdul Karim Vagil is a lecturer in History and Portuguese Studies in the Departments of History and of Languages, Literatures and Cultures at King's College London. He is the co-editor, co-editor, co-author of Thinking Through Islamophobia Global Perspectives, and now my Spanish is going to be tested. So Abdul Karim, if you could please (laughs) correct me where I go wrong. Portuguese. Oh, Portuguese, sorry. Spanish can be tested as well. Yeah. Mocambique, Memoria, Falada do Ialo de Guerra? Is it just completely wrong? You don't can, worry about it. it. Don't worry about it. Fair enough. No one will know better. <laughs> oh, I mean, someone might do. How would you say it? Something de Guerra? Uh, <laughs> Ambassador de Guerra. I mean, I know de Guerra means war, but you know what? We'll move on. And he's also written Al Andalus in Motion Traveling Concepts and Cross Cultural Contexts. So please, I'll agree. Good afternoon. Someone like so since I'm going first, what I'll be doing is I'll set out some of the foundational starting points for framing the discussion we are about to have. And these points will then be picked up by the next speakers, as well as, of course, uh, developed in the um, questions that are to follow, as well as the open Q&A with everyone here. So to spell out a starting position that should guide us, I would say that on the one hand, the critical thing to do is to de-exceptionalize Islamophobia by inserting it as a struggle uh, alongside other struggles for social justice. And on the other hand, and however, to say very firmly that in the current context, uh, both nationally as well as uh, globally, whether in terms of domestic political contexts or in the current world order, Islamophobia occupies a key position that makes it strategically significant to all other struggles for social justice rather than just a concern for Muslims or about Muslims. So strategic clarity about those mobilizing to combat Islamophobia is that there is no non-Islamophobic future in isolation from broader anti-racist futures. So these are the two fundamental points. One, to de-exceptionalize Islamophobia, but on the other hand, to see the centrality of Islamophobia within the current uh, conjuncture. So the two framing assumptions for positioning our discussion are the following, as I would argue. First, positioning Islamophobia as a struggle for social justice alongside other struggles for social justice. And second, combating Islamophobia requires thinking critically, conceptually, and strategically about the question of effectiveness. 
So to start with the first one, positioning Islamophobia as a struggle for social justice means positioning it alongside other struggles for social justice, but also within longer histories and genealogies of Islamophobia specifically, without which the current valences of Islamophobia cannot be understood. So for example, to think in terms of the historical sedimentation inscribing the meanings and connotations of Muslimness. So, Colonial histories, such as specifically the notions of fanaticism, violence, sexual repression, which are three of the key uh, current Islamophobic tropes, are entangled in the facts of anti-colonial resistance, in which Muslims are so active, as well as the entanglements of colonial governance, by which codes of sexuality, of criminal law, and so on were inscribed. Historical sedimentation was the first. The second one is the memories and experiences of racist violence and exclusion suffered by racialized minority, minoritized groups in particular, those deemed as immigrant and outsiders. And, correlative to that, the precarious regimes of citizenship which Muslims currently inhabit in most of the globe, centered on tropes of integration, particularly in the West, loyalty, and purported national values, which produce an always qualified and always precarious belonging, literally so in the case of those who can be stripped of nationality and subject to extradition. So, moreover, as with all social justice struggles, combating Islamophobia requires mobilizing not just those histories by which um, um, the, the sedimentation of tropes has been affected, but also the counter-histories and memories of resistance from anti-colonialism to anti-racism. So it's not about victimhood, this is one of the key points, it's about rights, justice and agency. Now, challenging uh, the status quo demands a redistribution, including material, of recognition, power and privilege, and so will always be resisted contested and instrumentalized. Nothing about this is exceptional, but degree, the degree to which such demands are with or against the grain of broader public consensus is what determines how it is depicted as exceptional, threatening, and particular, uh, as if it is an exceptional demand that Muslims make uh, contrary to um, others. So, if the first point was about positioning Islamophobia as a struggle for social justice, the second is that combating Islamophobia requires thinking critically, conceptually, and strategically about effectiveness. So, for example, why a definition? What are they for? What work should they do? And what enables them to do that work? Minimally, we should start by being reminded that the point is not merely to understand Islamophobia, but of course to combat it and that this is also a matter of context and contexts. In other words, if we are concerned here, for example, with student union policies and politics, such a context as universities is structured by a diverse array of other contexts and a diversity of registers. So the first one, for example, would be curricular and epistemological, justice in the classroom, to what extent are Muslims represented in their histories part and parcel of what is taught, what counts as authority, what counts as the narratives of what made the contemporary world and how to change it. And that's part of broader, broader demands and, and movements for decolonizing the curriculum. But on the other hand, there's also the backlashing reactionary politics at work, particularly of the culture wars, over free speech, safe spaces, and to which think tanks, politicians' pronouncements, and transnational culture wars are entirely endemic. So in particular, we can think, for example, of David Theo Goldberg's notion of the demeaning strategies at work in the attacks on critical race theory, which are really at the service of preserving advantages that are built into the social foundations of those who have power, and how they marginalize those who don't. So he speaks, for example, about demeaning in the sense of disparaging, degrading, and discounting the claims and demands of, of majoritized and marginalized groups that want uh, to make uh, good on their claims. And a demeaning, by which he means that terms such as racism are denuded of their established meanings, cast into doubt, 
shoring up the advantage of those who have power by deregulating racism. So, namely, turning racism into something that whites are victims of, such that it licenses them to defend themselves against these claims. This in particular captures, I think, what is going on with Islamophobia. Islamophobia as a term is demeaned, demeaned, so as to purportedly expose how Muslims are making extraordinary claims to protection and privilege and substantiating the defense of white victimhood. Now, the definition that we have proposed in consequence is that Islamophobia is a type of racism that targets expressions of Muslimness or, per or perceived Muslimness. Three quick points about this, which will then be picked up. The first one is that the definitions of Islamophobia have over time shifted from a focus on religion and discrimination, so on Muslims and their practices, to Islamophobia's conceptual relation to racism. And in particular, we center that on the racialization of Muslims. Muslims are not a race, but they are racialized. That should take care of one of the initial simplistic objections. And secondly, focusing it on the targeting of Muslimness. Thirdly, it moves from the structural dimension, it moves to the structural dimensions of institutional and other practices that work through both exclusion and inclusion and result in both reductive life outcomes on the one hand and the normativization of acceptable good Muslims and the curtailment of, good, uh, of Muslim agency on the other. So these are the three features that the definition focuses on foregrounds. The, the movement away from religion and discrimination towards notions of racialization and Muslimness means a move away from negative representations and demonization, which tended to focus on incidents and hate crimes as such, to the question of enabling environments and policies, so from individual perpetrators and their psychology to a political understanding of hate crime as a manifestation of racialized sovereignty over what are perceived as bodies out of place. So this is what Barner, Hess, and Ray call the territorial logics of social regulation and expulsion. In other words, to quote them, racial harassment expresses in the eyes of its perpetrators a sense of proprietorial relation to social spaces as white territory. Next move is from the focus on the far right or right-wing populisms, which occupy so much of Muslim mobilization, to both illiberal and liberal Islamophobia, specifically state Islamophobia. As a French activist put it in a meeting that I was at, it's very well and good to appeal to the state for protection, but who protects us from the state? And here specifically, of course, it's the securitarian meshes of anti-terror legislation prevent and the depiction, uh, sorry, and the suspicion and surveillance and the criminalization of dissent that are particularly foregrounded in the current moment that we are living through, should we need any proof. So these are the key points, I would say, that should inform our thinking. So how do definitions work? They, def they work by not as something that being, needs to be actioned in courts in the first instance, but remaking common sense, telling different stories, counter-narratives, building up a different vocabulary, a different common sense, a different language, a different grammar, so what is at the center and at the core of the work that we must do with these definitions and embedding these definitions is history, power, and politics in place of the continuous attempt to frame it in terms of culturalization, religion, and sensitivity. The offenses, the liberal values of free speech, and so on in which the debates are framed. So we should not accept the terms of the debate, but reframe the very terms of the debate. So it takes nothing less than the entrenching new narratives of how the world came to be as it is, with history and power at the center of it, and the play of power and inequalities, hierarchies and inclusions and exclusions that it naturalizes, and we need to denaturalize them. So there are two approaches to end with, accommodation and transformation. One, we need to embed anti-Islamophobia in broader shared literacies about racism, social justice movements, which fight for inclusion, recognition, and anti-discrimination. But that's not enough. We need to also bring up the histories of, and memories of anti-colonial, anti-racist, and intersectional struggles for social justice, 
for, econ for more just economic relations, institutions, laws, political orders and policies, foreign and domestic, such that we do not want to merely be accommodated, but we want to transform the very structures that dictate the terms of power and relationality. So it is the latter that inscribes emancipation, the second term of our meeting, at the core of anti-anti-Islamophobia visions and strategies beyond the immediatist horizons of firefighting, of incidents, accommodations, and local fixes that otherwise we are always um, consigned to. Um, next, we're going to have uh, Dr. Gautam Najib. Um, she is a lecturer in human geography at the University of Liverpool. Her research interests center on social and urban geographies of inequality and discrimination uh, using both quantitative and qualitative methods. Um, she explores more broadly issues of social and spatial justice and was the principal researcher of the SAMA, Spaces of Anti-Muslim Acts project in Paris and London funded by the European Commission, which highlights the impact of Islamophobia on space and people. In 2021, she published her first book, Spatialized Islamophobia, which demonstrates the spatial and multi-scalar nature of Islamophobia. So, hello everyone, um, and I'm very happy to, to be part of this uh, symposium to discuss Islamophobia and emancipation in this very difficult time uh, where emancipation uh, from Islamophobia is very urgent and more than necessary for all of us. Uh, today I've been asked to discuss the definitions of Islamophobia and maybe the various strategies used to avoid certain notions, even though that's not usually what I focus on. I am a geographer and I focus more on the geographies of Islamophobia and its global process, how local issues um, are connected to global uh, Islamophobia. But I'm more than happy to contribute and discuss this uh, with the experts on the definition of Islamophobia. So, um, what is Islamophobia? Uh, first, we can say that Islamophobia is uh, a contested concept that has uh, generated many debates in academia and beyond, um, to the point that some, uh, a minority though, prefer to use other terms like anti-Muslimism, for example. In the UK, uh, there is a famous think tank, uh, the Renimid Trust, which early on uh, used the term Islamophobia to refer to any distinction, exclusion, and um, restriction uh, against Muslims. Academics um, have done influential work um, historically contextualizing um, and uh, engaging, uh, contextualizing Islamophobia and engaging intellectually with uh, various theories that allow them to highlight processes of othering and racialization um, of Muslims. Um, the work of Edward Said um, on Orientalism, uh, which describes how a Western um, discourse represents the figure of the Arab um, as an exotic and barbarous uh, Oriental, represents one of uh, the primary critical approaches used in critical Islamophobia studies or um, in critical uh, Muslim studies. Therefore, uh, academics have shown that the very origin of uh, the word uh, Islamophobia is very much related to a racist context. And uh, most of them, uh, most of us, uh, agreed to use the term uh, Islamophobia and defined it as um, a form of anti-Muslim racism. So this is also how uh, the APPG, all party parliamentary groups, um, defines it. Um, after diverse consultation uh, with uh, not only academics, but also policymakers, legal experts, and community groups. The APPG published a special report a few years ago um, explaining that Islamophobia is uh, rooted in uh, racism and is a type of uh, racism that targets expressions of Muslimness or perceived Muslimness. And this definition was submitted to Westminster in 2018, but it was also rejected by uh, the Theresa May government, um, even though many people uh, use it today, including some uh, politicians. So what, was, uh, what is the problem uh, with this definition? It is probably related to the academic versus common language understanding of race and racism. Academics have been able to show that the very concept of Islamophobia is historically uh, rooted in racism, 
because it intersects of how, uh, with how race uh, has been produced throughout history. But all the theories of race agree uh, that there is no biological marker to determine race. Therefore, race uh, results from historical conditions and constitutes a process of racialization by which groups con uh, uh, are constructed in society uh, through power uh, relations, material relations, and discursive forces. And with Islam, uh, it is exactly the same. The same forces have made it possible to construct the notion of the Muslim other and to racialize Muslims as part of a single group, subject to negative representations. This necessarily must mobilize uh, the notion of racism against people perceived as uh, having this uh, unique group identity, despite the great diversity of uh, uh, Muslim populations. But in the common language, uh, this is not really how Islamophobia as a form of uh, racism is understood. One of uh, the major issues that fostered the rejection of uh, such a definition is to say uh, this famous sense, uh, Islam is not a race, or uh, Muslims are not a race, and therefore we cannot uh, say that Islamophobia is a form of racism. And that's where people get confused and say that religion is not a race. But as academics, uh, at the academic level, uh, we can even go further by saying that race does not exist uh, because it is a construction, but racism does exist, and racism exploits this racialized categorization of, of people. Thus, claiming that Islamophobia is not a race is uh, also, in a certain way, denying that Islamophobia functions um, like a racist process, um, as it shows similar uh, processes of uh, racism. And that's why the academic understanding of Islamophobia as anti-Muslim racism needs to be integrated in the general uh, definition of Islamophobia. By linking Islamophobia to racism, the definition uh, includes not only one individual racism that the majority uh, condemn, even in the most liberal uh, societies, but also to the structural roots of uh, racism that is much harder to recognize and criticize uh, as they can directly point out um, the institutional violence uh, against Muslims. And that's not uh, what the notion of anti-Muslim hatred allows. Um, Anti-Muslim hatred um, only focuses on the individual scale of Islamophobia. That's why we can uh, say that anti-Muslim hatred um, is a weak definition of Islamophobia. Islamophobia includes anti-Muslim hatred, but it's not uh, just reduced to that. It is beyond that. It is much wider than that. It also includes, for example, what structural institutions could do to Muslims as a whole, affecting their lives, their work, their freedom, the possibility for them to thrive, to climb the social ladder, to have a strong political voice, etc. It is therefore very important to distinguish the individual scale from the structural scale to understand the difference uh, between racism and hatred. This concept of anti-Muslim hatred seeks to reduce and individualize what is in fact a structural issue. But racism is not individual hatred. It is not even the sum of individual actions of hatred. It is historically and structurally grounded in systems of domination and can be linked to what the state does. That's why uh, the concept of anti-Muslim racism uh, has greater uh, value. Having said that, we understand better why some people uh, and many politicians, political organizations or city councils are more um, reluctant to use this concept of anti-Muslim racism because they don't want to, to, to see the actions of the state become the target of criticism and prefer to deal with something that is uh, solely individualized as it is much easier for them to denounce and condemn the individual targeting of Muslims by random perpetrators. They will highlight the inconsistency of the definition of uh, anti-Muslim racism as it is understood in the common language to better justify its rejections and uh, will uh, prefer to use the concept of anti-Muslim hatred. So there is a need to go beyond the individual scale and, uh, of Islamophobia because anti-Muslim racism is much deeper than anti-Muslim hatred, uh, which is just a facade hiding the structural violence. 
very difficult to overcome. This is very difficult to overcome um, even uh, when important tools exist in this country, such as the Equality Act 2010, that continues to fail uh, to protect British Muslims, um, precisely because of the non-adoption of uh, a formal definition of uh, Islamophobia as anti-Muslim racism. Muslims uh, cannot ra uh, use racial uh, discrimination provisions to uh, defend themselves against uh, racial abuse, unlike Jews and Sikhs who are uh, recognized as uh, racial, uh, racial uh, groups uh, within the meaning of the law. So to conclude, um, I have three points. Uh, the first one is about the importance of language. Um, despite, despite various uh, debates, Islamophobia is um, still a useful umbrella term and uh, that has uh, become part of uh, established uh, academic uh, practitioner and societal parlance. And the term is widely understood as a form of uh, anti-Muslim racism. Opposition to uh, the use of this term mainly comes from detractors who seek to delegitimize and held back uh, work on Islamophobia. Second point is uh, the importance of exposing the comfortable uh, laissez-faire and uh, silence of, um, in, in the face of structural violence against Muslims. Indeed, uh, many people with close relationships uh, um, with uh, government officials won't recognize such a violence because they will necessarily um, find themselves in a very uncomfortable position if they denounce uh, certain uh, government practices and policies that have uh, enabled the stigmatization of Muslims. If these people are here uh, to fight racism, then they must show us that they want to promote a sense of justice that includes all kinds of knowledge, um, even those that make us uncomfortable. Resistance against uh, injustice uh, is rarely a safe and pleasurable struggle, and even us academics can totally relate to that, because we also work in um, institutions. We can also have research results that go completely against the mainstream thinking uh, in academia. My final point uh, highlights the importance of bringing uh, together all global struggles against oppression. Islamophobia is anti-Muslim racism and such a definition has the potential to go beyond Islam and Muslim identity and create new alliances with broader anti-racist groups, solidarities, actions and movements that already know the structural dimension of racism. Islamophobia is an anti-racist issue, but it is also a feminist issue, an anti-antisemitic issue, an anti-colonialist issue, an anti-imperialist issue, uh, and so on. So the Black Lives, uh, Lives Matter movement or the Palestinian solidarity that we can witness every Saturday now uh, are fighting um, against a criminal machine that has demonized and dehumanized Muslims, uh, Blacks, Arabs, and uh, the Global South. So all of these oppressed identities will unite against the normalization um, of the imperialist, white supremacist, uh, patriarchal culture. Inshallah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, my last, oh, the last, um, presenter today is Professor Salman Said, who is based here at the University of Leeds and holds a chair in decolonial thought and social theory. He has held academic positions in London, Manchester, and Adelaide. His research and publications focus on rhetoric, racism, and historical sociologies. His work has been translated into over a dozen languages. Some of his major publications include A Fundamental Fear, a book that's now in its third edition despite being banned by the Malaysian government, Thinking Through Islamophobia, co-edited with Abdul Bakil, and Recalling the Caliphate. Uh, Professor Saeed is, a leading, is leading a major interdisciplinary research program pioneering critical Muslim studies. He is also the founding editor of Reorient, the Journal of Critical Muslim Studies. Okay, thank you very much. And um, it's always a challenge to be um, at the sort of last speaker on a panel where you agree with everyone who said everything before you. So there is, um, it's quite simple for me just to simply say yes and finish talking at that point. But I think Hizza would get very nervous if I said that. So I'm gonna say a few things before that. But I wanna pick up where um, Koper uh, finished off where she mentioned a list of uh, 
groups or organizations fighting for emancipation. And that list, I'm sure she would agree, is not exhaustive, but it's indicative, yeah? It tells you that the fight against Islamophobia is not just a fight for um, justice or um, discrimination against Muslims. And this was again the point that Abdul Karim picked up as well, that the idea of Islamophobia has to sit along other campaigns for social justice. So another way of thinking about this is maybe to focus upon the second term of this symposium, which was emancipation. And I'd like to suggest to you that one way of thinking of emancipation is a project of rewriting the social contract. And what I mean by um, the social contract isn't um, just a, uh, I mean, believe it or not, we don't actually write a social contract. You're not given one. It's not something that can be legal. It is. Um, but you do have a sense of a belief um, culturally, through school, through background knowledge, but also through a legal framework, that there's some kind of relationship between the rulers and the ruled. And there's some sort of idea of how society should work, and some sort of idea about your place in society, and how, what is to be expected, what is appropriate behavior, etc. And the social contract sort of exists as a not as a document, but as a discourse that we all actually fall upon, we all use without actually mentioning it. But we kind of already implicitly are always um, talking about it or working through it. So emancipation then is really a way of rewriting some of those terms. And that, it seems to me, is a really important way of thinking about the question around Islamophobia and other forms of discriminatory practices, because the discriminatory practices are nearly always seen to be discriminatory only at the point where certain aspects, certain tensions appear within our perceived notion of what the social contract should be or shouldn't be for different kinds of population groups. So if you think about Islamophobia um, as part of a a genre of different kinds of concepts which have emerged to deal with these discriminatory practices. You can see, for example, anti-Semitism emerges in the mid-19th um, century. Islamophobia emerges in the, mid, uh, the, uh, the beginning of the um, 20th century. And racism, funnily enough, only emerges in the 1930s. And it's by a gay activist. Um, and the reason racism emerges is quite interesting because racism is used to describe what is happening under Nazi rule in Germany. And this is in the 1930s. So what is happening under Nazi rule in Germany is exactly what is happening under Dutch rule in the East Indies, under French rule in the French Empire, under British rule in um, and the British Empire, and of course, in the southern parts of the United States. So the question is this, that why do we need a new concept when all of these things are already happening? And these things are happening under the rubric of colonialism. So the emergence of racism as a concept different from colonialism isn't something which is um, natural. Um, a number of... Um, Famous um, thinkers and writers often talked about um, the idea that really what was racism or what was Nazi rule specifically was colonialism brought home to Europe. Um, now, if you think like that, two things immediately happen. One is the invention of a concept does lots of different works. And one of the things that the concept of racism does is separate what is considered to be things which should happen inside a country to things which happen outside a country. That becomes very important because then there are certain types of questions that you can say are questions around racism and certain questions and problems which are around colonialism. And one of the arguments has always been to try and keep those things separate. So one of the uh, familiar tropes around anti-Semitism was the idea of a Jewish conspiracy, which mobilized and helped um, Jewish populations inside Europe. 
but this conspiracy was foreign. So the idea of the Jew as a foreign figure of the Jew, as a foreigner, and controlled by a foreign conspiracy. And you see similar kinds of tropes about looking for uh, militants, looking for people who are always external to the society as the people who bring trouble, the people who actually upset everybody. And this, in a sense, shows some of the tensions around the idea of problems that need to be dealt internally and problems that need to be dealt externally. Now, I would say to you that Islamophobia is a form of discriminatory uh, practice, which, again, erodes this distinction between home and abroad. Um, continuously, it erodes that because there's always an argument that Islamophobia is something that occurs only in the in inside a country because of outside influences. And the outside influences make the inside illegitimate. Now, the trouble with inside and outside is that we're very used to, as part of this social contract, thinking of them in terms of the nation state, in terms of nationality. Um, and that becomes questioned when you start thinking about a phenomenon of discriminatory practices, which seems to um, not be respectful of the distinction between inside and outside. So this, it seems to me, is a way of um, trying to um, think about emancipation as a way of renegotiating not only the terms of the social contract itself, but the parameters of the social contract. Where does it apply? Um, and that leads me to the second point I want to make, uh, really, is the category of Muslimness and Muslims. Now, the reason we talk about Muslimness is quite obvious, is that in Islamophobia, you don't really have um, a fixation on Muslims per se, because we know one of the first victims, like say after 9-11, who was killed uh, in retaliation for 9-11, was actually a um, Sikh man. And he was killed because he had a beard and a turban. And people thought, well, the people, the racists thought that he was a Muslim. Um, and the quality of what makes a Muslim isn't something to do with your devotion. It's not to do with your particular affiliation. It is that there's a certain quality that attaches itself to certain um, actions, certain behaviors, certain practices, etc. So it's quite mobile, and things can become Muslimness in particular ways. So, for example, if you look at the coverage of the pro-Palestinian demonstrations, there is a sense in which Palestinians are seen to be completely Muslim, where, in fact, at least 30 to 20 percent of the Palestinian population is Christian. Yeah? But the idea is that this is a, only a Muslim thing. So there's a way in which Palestinianization of Muslimness becomes the way of reading all of these events. And then you get into a question about, well, these are um, other kinds of tropes around um, jihadi violence, etc., can enter into the picture because you've established that link between Palestinian uh, liberation, Muslimness, etc. So one way of thinking about these things is that, in a way, Islamophobia is the Palestinianization of Muslimness. And the concept of Palestinianization, Palestinianization is something that was um, introduced by David Theo Goldberg to talk about a set of experiences in which you have not only um, uh, discriminatory practices, segregation, etc., which all exist, but there's also a kind of a discourse around that which is also denying all of those practices as being legitimate, etc. So there is a Palestinianization of that. And his argument is that Palestinianization leads to dehumanization. And I think this is one of the critical ways of thinking about all forms of racist practices, is dehumanization. Now, what dehumanization means is not that, it's not a biological argument. It's not that you can say to someone, well, someone is a human because they have these, they have the correct DNA compared to a chimpanzee or whatever. Being a human, is not a biological element fact. It is being part of the notion of what constitutes humanity. And being able to represent humanity is really the key 
discussion, the key debate, and the key struggle at any moment where you have struggles against racism in general. Because the humanity here means that you are considered to be a person, um, considered to be someone of equal worth to everyone else. But humanity cannot be represented totally. So you always have certain ways of representing humanity. And it's the representations of humanity then become very, very clear in anti-racist uh, struggles. Because what you're trying to do is expand what is considered to be human, what is considered to be humane. And it is that struggle for the expansion of humanity and being allowed to be members of that humanity, which have furnished historically some of the key struggles for uh, emancipation. And I want to sort of finally um, conclude one of, uh, with just a small reminder. I've talked about, uh, like my colleagues, a concept of Islamophobia. Um, but we've kind of blurred the distinction between a concept and a phenomenon. So the idea that the concept itself has a life separate from the phenomenon is something that I think we need to reject in a sense that phenomenon can only become realizable, visible, actionable if you have a concept. That doesn't mean that cruelty and violence and other things did not exist, but they could not really be spoken about, they could not be directed in. If you don't have a concept of racism, you can't be an anti-racist. If you don't have a concept of colonialism, you cannot be anti-colonialist. If you don't have a concept of patriarchy, you cannot have feminism. So all of these moments of these concepts are actually what develop the possibility of making that struggle. And I think if we're going to think about Islamophobia as a, and as a form of deepening emancipation, we need to think about Islamophobia as how it's rewriting our social relations throughout the world, which doesn't just affect those who are perceived to be Muslims, who are Muslims, but everyone. And to finally finish on one simple example, when the various anti-terror legislations were put into government by New Labour, um, one of the things they said, well, don't worry about it. It will never be used um, foolishly. It will only be used in extreme situations. And the number of people now, for example, has been revealed who can actually access your intimate details, uh, who can take photographs has grown into its thousands. And we have various reports that people use this information no longer for security threats, but spying on their partners, uh, uh, seeing if their neighbors are collecting their bins properly, all of this kind of thing, because you've expanded the notion. And some of those legend rules that come in for Islamophobia and then start affecting everybody else. So in a sense, what we're trying to say here is this, that the struggle for Islamophobia is a struggle for justice, and the struggle for justice has to be founded on the idea of being able to rewrite a social contract which is far more inclusive, far more um, just than the one that is happening right now before us. Because what we are witnessing is the hollowing out of a democratic settlement that has existed since certain parts of the world in 19, since 1945. And now you see how often it is able to, you're able to say, well, because of terrorist threats, because of these things, we should curtail some of those uh, fundamental liberal uh, values which we thought were never going to go away. So, if you want to live in an emancipated society, it must be a society which is anti-racist, which means it's anti-Islamophobic and it's anti-anti-anti-Semitic. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for that just said, and thank you to all of our um, speakers today. Um, I have a couple of questions before we open up. As I said, um, I'm going to abuse my chair's privilege and ask my questions first. But the first thing that I want to ask, and it's something that all is directed to all of you, because you all kind of use this concept. Um, I want to ask, what is Muslimness? Because you all use this concept, but I think we could go a bit more into it. What exactly is it? What does it mean? What does it denote? I think there were a few comments towards this, but there were 
in a bit more detail. So it's a series of um, systematic uh, connotations that enable the identification of a Muslim in any particular moment in time. Whether they actually attach to Muslims or not is an entirely different matter. Historically, they're continuously shifting and entirely contradictory across time. So in the case of the Moriscos in Spain, it would be using olive oil and washing too much. In the case of uh, 19th century North Africa, it would be the perpetrators of uh, sodomy. And in the case of 20th century, it's the actually opposite of those. They are immigrants who stink, and they are people who are particularly homophobic. So the, the set of associations that attach to, to a particular object are historically specific, continuously shifting. And what matters is what series of connotations are crest over time, sedimented in a particular uh, way, such that, as I was uh, suggesting, we can't look at the major tropes such as, for example, the notion of Muslims being sexually repressive, being fanatical, being particularly violent, without thinking of how these have been sedimented over time in particular conjunctures, where, for example, colonialism was a form of oppression, Muslims were at the forefront of anti-colonial struggles, and so the tropes of fanaticism, of violence, of, of, of um, um, virility, and so on, were crest in, in those times. Uh, what matters to us in terms of uh, focusing on Muslimness, slightly different uh, way from what Kota was saying, is that at the center of the way that we framed the, the work is not anti-Muslimness, but the targeting of Muslimness. Sorry, it's not anti-Muslim, but the targeting, targeting of Muslimness. Because it is not um, centered on the figure of the Muslim as, uh, in terms of religious, theological, devotional, uh, or even Muslims at all, but what are identified as Muslim practices. Okay, thank you very much uh, for that. I just thought I'd kind of get a bit more um, bit more from um, our speakers on that issue. Uh, so the, my next question is, I think it's mostly for uh, Gauthier and Abu Krim, because you guys explicitly uh, mentioned this. I think, uh, Professor Said, you did talk about this as well, but I think it was more explicitly mentioned in both uh, Gauthier and Abu Krim's presentations. I wanted you to talk a bit more about, so you spoke about how Islamophobia has to be seen um, in conjunction with other fights for social justice, yeah? And I just wanted you to, to draw upon any specific points where you thought those connections could be made across those different um, examples, for example, so that you gave at the end of your uh, presentation and of the cream you gave some as well. Like, could you tease those out a bit more? Um, I think that uh, when we talk about racism, uh, uh, we can uh, create new alliances with any anti-racist groups um, and uh, that way we can um, try to um, so we, we are part of the same uh, global struggle uh, and um, the, the global struggle is against oppression and racism is a, is a part of, a, of, a, of an oppression so um, what I like in the notion of anti-racist um, um, anti-Muslim racist uh, uh, racism, sorry, um, is the fact that this when we understand that racism is um, wrong and you know everybody can understand that, and then uh, those people who work, who are specifically uh, targeting uh, anti-black racism or anti um, uh, it could be anti-Palestinian uh, racism, then we can. Uh, Work with them and try to to make uh, those connections. I um, say that because uh, I recently uh, watched a video of um, a, a man who um, was um, uh, a part of uh, the anti uh, the Black Life, uh, Lives Matter movement in the in the U.S. Uh, during the Ferguson. Um, 
uh, event. Um, and uh, when uh, the Palestinians saw what happened in Ferguson, then they were sending them messages to tell them how to protect themselves from tear gas and all this. Uh, uh, because it was new for them, they didn't know, and they were uh, very, uh, they, they felt very isolated and, and, and alone because they were from um, a working class city. Um, and it was Palestinian people sending them messages to help them. They were telling them, uh, use, uh, you know, milk uh, and uh, baking soda so that, uh, you know, those. Uh, those things will be able. Uh, you will be able to protect yourself from um, from the tears gas. Um, so there is direct um, help that we can have from people who are oppressed around the world, and um, it's not necessarily the oppressed that live close to you. Uh, it could be the oppressed uh, on 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 the other uh, side of the world. Uh, I think for Muslims we. Um, we uh, pay attention to what happened in the Muslim world. Uh, we pay attention uh, to what happened to the Rohingya, to uh, the Uyghur, uh, etc. But we should go beyond uh, Islam and the Muslim identity and uh, try to um, uh, build any alliances with, um, with uh, the oppressed. So, Carter put the emphasis on strategy and building alliances. That's important. I think even more fundamentally, um, there are two reasons why we align Islamophobia with uh, other social justice struggles. One is to de-exceptionalize it, because the discourse is so much about the notion that Muslims are particularly sensitive, they want exceptional measures of, of privilege and, and um, being able to let be, be, let off, be let off of the same kinds of criticism that applies to others. So one of the reasons is to place it alongside other justice struggles and say what Muslims are aiming for is a kind of rights recognition and redistribution of privileges that other social movements are involved in. That's one side. But I think much more fundamental is the notion that inscribing it as a racism in includes understanding two things. One, that racism is continuously shifting and is relational. And you can't settle or resolve the targeting of particular groups within racism segmentally. <laughs> one at a time and settle them and resolve them because it's labile and continuously shifting and relational. And second, I'm sorry to say, it's the cliche, but freedom is a constant struggle. We won't actually reach the point where we can say that our work is done, we can go home. Thank you very much for that. Um, both. Now, I have a, um, a question for um, Professor Said based on his presentation. And you mentioned that there's this effort to kind of split racism and colonialism and keep these things far apart in thinking. Um, I would like to ask what examples of that there are, like how, what justification do people use in keeping these things apart? Is it just a simple amnesia, as Barbara and Homewood tell us, or is it something else? Like, what, what's, the, what's the play? I think um, there are a number of ways it's kept apart. Um, Firstly, there's a denial, and, and I think the amnesia of colonial amnesia is actually a very good point there. Um, there is a denial of the way that racism flows and how it actually entrenches itself in small spaces. So the example of Ferguson is quite interesting, not just in terms of the resistance to police brutality, but also in terms of the... Um, circulation of particular tactics, techniques across the world about how to tame and domesticate and discipline unruly populations, which, uh, you know, you have police seminars, you have technology that goes from one place to the other. And so there is, and that is always separated out. So when you talk about um, it in that way, but in a more commonsensical way, if you talk about colonialism, people say, well, that's all over. There's no empire, there's no colonialism done that, been it, thrown away the t-shirt, and therefore we need something new. Now, what is interesting is this. Um, about a year or two years ago, just after COVID, um, just Trump, uh, the last years of Trump, um, uh, after the murder of uh, George Floyd, a number of strange things happened in the world on this. One, 
was that it led to some of the largest multicultural, multi-ethnic demonstrations in the United States since the 1960s, even if not before. But the reason why people were demonstrating was not just because they saw those demonstrations as a, um, a critique of so few rotten apples in the police force. Like, you know, you have police forces and we know that you can have bad people and bad jobs, etc. But they linked the murder of George Floyd directly to the stain of the enslavery complex in the United States and the policing that grew from that. Now, that's a very complex argument. And that's a very historical argument. But it's a history that was not necessarily circulating. You wouldn't find it on CNN. You wouldn't find it generally on the movie of the week kind of thing. It was a history that had to be recovered, which was a history of mobilization, a history of this, a suppressed history to make sense of that. So part of the decolonizing element was, and the why it's taken off so much so, is that it was able to show another narrative which made better sense of the world rather than the one that pretended that the logic of colonialism is finished because there are no, after Hong Kong became free, there's no British Empire. Um, the French have now been kicked out of Africa again, um, so there's no French colonialism, etc., etc. And the Dutch are not really involved in colonialism either, etc. Okay, so everyone is nobody's a colonialist anyway. But the point is that the continuation of some of the main logics remain. And one of the things is this, that many, many universities in this country, including this one actually, had a statement um, against the murder of George Floyd, which I think is an excellent thing, but you couldn't actually imagine a statement by any university in favor of the murder of George Floyd. So the question is, what is that statement trying to do? And why are organizations and having those, making those statements at this moment in time? So part of it is, a recognition that the decolonial, uh, that linkage between the colonial, which has been suppressed, and the racial, and the, which is active, can no longer be uh, suppressed. And then what do you do with it? What do you do with that information? Because behind that suppression between colonialism and racism is actually a much more interesting one, is a having to rethink the causes of racism and the failure after 50 years of anti-racist policies in many ways, or anti-EDI initiatives. So, because you can't tell the story of racism only internally. It has to be linked to that broader history. If you don't talk about that broader history, you don't actually have an explanation for racism. All you have is, well, racism is caused by racists, which is easy enough, but now there's nobody on the planet who is a racist. Everyone, so even the most virulent racists will tell you, I'm not a racist, but, and sometimes I'm even bother with a but. And it's more difficult to be accused of being, you know, it's more problematic to be accused of being a ra um, racist than actually doing racism. So I think one of the things is that if you don't have the historical knowledge, you evacuate the explanations. If you evacuate the explanations, it's like big, uh, the medical metaphor here, that if you don't have the correct diagnosis, it's very unlikely that you're going to be able to cure whatever the, um, the disease is. So that's one of those linkages that you see both an attempt to do that, but you also see how the liberal establishment and other groups and societies and you know, talk TV, etc., often will tell you that there is absolutely no link. And this is um, really, really, we should forget all about this. So I think it's constant all the time. I mean, how many, by the way, how many people here, uh, how many universities in this country, the Russell Group universities, because they're all ancient, well, I say they're ancient, but anyway, how many of them have been funded by colonial proceeds? Now, no one's saying to them, turn away your money or whatever, but how many of them would admit that? I know UCL, for example, had a, did this, but I don't think it's a uniform picture. This is why the whole thing about um, Rhodes, the Cecil Rhodes in Oxford, it's not saying you undo the past, but let's not gaslight us to knowing how the past came in. There's a difference between gaslighting and saying, well, you know, you want to destroy, you know, undo everything. No, we just want you to stop gaslighting us. 
This has been an episode of Radio Reorient, brought to you by Network Reorient, part of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. Your host has been Hizamir, and the episode has been sound engineered by Zubair Vakil. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating.